If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. And if you do not have a Bible, hopefully you can find one underneath the chair in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles. And if you do not own a Bible, please see that as our gift to you to take home with you. Uh, this church is grounded upon the sufficiency of Scripture, God's Word, and we want to get that into as many hands as possible. So we're continuing our study in the book of Samuel. And we find ourselves in chapter 27. And just to kind of prepare us from, for where we're about to, to jump in, um, David has been on the run from King Saul. In chapter 26, Saul, after telling David that he would um, bless him after uh, the previous encounter in the cave and in Gedi, uh, David soon hears word that that's not quite the truth. And in chapter 26, Saul uh, is told again where David is by the Ziphites, and Saul pursues David. And if you remember where we were uh, looking at that particular chapter, David is given another opportunity. Saul is given into his hands God places Saul and his men in a deep sleep in their, in their uh, camp. And we're, as the, the story unfolds, David uh, is even tempted, encouraged by Abishai to, to let this be the end of King Saul. He's before us. He's in a deep sleep. Let's take him out. And David refrains from that, takes his spear and his canteen. And then as that story unfolds, uh, David lets Saul know that he has spared him once again. He could have taken him out. He didn't. And um, Saul looks again like he is going to let up. He's, he's going to stop what he's been doing. And we do, as we're working through this, this particular book, realize that that was their last encounter. But David doesn't know that. David is is faced with this same opposition, this heartache, this difficulty, and this is where after Saul, you know, gives him his closing words, we, we land in chapter 27, and this is where David goes. When I say David goes, in his mind, in his heart, reading in verse 1, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that, 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 than that I shall escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath, and David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinim of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. 
For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehermelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. And say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And I want us to see the first two verses into chapter 8. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the, ar in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Hear the word of the Lord. So I really want our attention to be focused on verses 1 and 2, what David said in his heart that led to where he ended up, which was in the, the land of the Philistines for 16 months. Now, on a little lighter note, as you look at your bulletin, you may be curious, um, reflecting upon the title, The Anointed Fleas, like plural insects, the anointed fleas, and it should, should actually be the word fleas, like he, he leaves, E-E-S, <laughs> the anointed one, David, flees to the Philistines. So, caught that a little late, I apologize. And I didn't want it to lead to major confusion, but David did refer to himself as a flea, just saying, but it's still very confusing. So, the anointed one flees to the land of the Philistines. Okay, as we look at this chapter, I think it is very important for us to rem remember a doctrine called by theologians the clarity of Scripture, perspicuity, that, that Scripture is clear on the essentials, meaning anyone with, with normal intelligence can open up God's word given to his people, his very word, and we can understand who he is, our sin, and the great plan of redemption that is found in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Clarity of scripture. While that is true, this doctrine also recognizes that not everything in Scripture is easy to understand. Some passages are more difficult to interpret than others, even if the gospel is made clear in the pages of the Bible. 
And I would submit to you today's passage, this chapter, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, qualifies as one of the more difficult passages of Scripture. Not in understanding what takes place, what's going on. That, that I think, is, is clear for us to see. Rather, to actually evaluate all that's going on. We're, we're not told by this narrative how we're to actually understand or evaluate David's actions. We're given verses 1 and 2, which I do think is telling. There's a lot of self-talk happening in David's heart that we will get to a little bit later. And I also think that it's telling that this is a God-less chapter, meaning there is no reference to God. And as we watch David, there is really no crying out to God, seeking God. We don't see David return to that kind of consistency until chapter 29. And I say consistency, I mean dependence upon God that is so clear. And, and when, he, when he's presented with issues and circumstances, difficulties, the turning to the Lord is very clear. It has been in previous episodes, and it will be, but right here in this chapter, we're left kind of hanging because there are some things that happen that you could go, okay, you could start building a case that, that David is doing right and good. But then if you really also see the full lay of the land, it does lead us to ponder, how are we to, to evaluate this? Going, crossing over, and spending that time with the Philistines, and then the raids that, that happen, all of those things are laid before us, and we're left really with, with not a firm conclusion, but I do think there are some great application here in this difficult passage. So first, I want us to note what Saul said of David earlier on. So this happened in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. This was the first time that the Ziphites go to Saul and rat on David, telling him exactly where he is. They do it again. And the first time that they tell him, this is how Saul responds in verses 21 and 22. Saul said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure He's saying, make sure you know exactly where he is. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there because for it is told me that he is very cunning. What we see very clearly in this chapter, chapter 27, is that David has many gifts from the Lord. He, he is cunning in the way in which he navigates through difficult situations Think for a moment, he has been on the run for years now from King Saul, the one who has all the resources in order to find this man. He's able to, to figure out ways to, to get away from and continue, continually escape from King Saul. So with this in mind, David, he is a cunning individual. He has been gifted with, with great street smarts, a good sense about him. Yet I want us to, as we're working through this passage, remember 
Proverbs chapter 3. I want this to be planted in our minds as we, as we proceed through this passage. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, we could just spend time unpacking that Proverbs, but just briefly, we know how cunning David is. This proverb doesn't say that we don't use our understanding, but this leaning on our understanding, if you lean against a wall, you have confidence in that wall that it's not going to give way. When you're leaning on your own understanding, you're, you're actually trusting or putting most weight on kind of how you know how to respond, the things that you've gained and gleaned and are going to now apply. That's leaning on one's self versus fully trusting in the Lord. David makes this decision to flee. And as we just evaluate the scene, there are many reasons why this makes a lot of sense, why it seems to be right. So, in fact, if we think just a bit about David's thinking, we begin to understand why he lands in the land of the Philistines. It spells deliverance from him, for him. Think for a moment about the sure exhaustion that a man like David on the run for this long must have experienced. Think about the troops and Saul, the, the, the thousands of elite soldiers tracking him, and the treachery and betrayal of the local people, the Ziphites, and the men of Keilah, going several chapters back. People that he had hoped would not betray him, would not rat him out, are doing so, and he is finding nowhere to hide. Then think about all the people that are with him. So we have been told that 600 men are with him. A little bit more information, light is shed on this, that it is not only the men, but their households. So now we're easily into the thousands of people that David has been um, charged to care for and not care for in one location, but on the move. Women and children and all of the needs, you just, those things compounded on each other and you begin to understand that, man, this, this makes a whole lot of sense how this episode unfolds. All these concerns would wear down the best of us. And so just by way of reminder, hearing the first two verses, David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so that prompts him to go. And so as we look at this chapter, what we see is David's plan in verses 1 through 4, David's new home in verses 5 through 7, David's scheme in verses 8 through 12, and then I wanted us to read into chapter 28 because I think it's so important. We see then David's dilemma. So we're going to just move through this and then hopefully spend some time really looking at verses 1 and 2 at the end. So first, the plan. Returning to Gath. Make note of that. This is him returning to Gath. This is the second time that he moves into this area. 
as he's thinking about how to get away from Saul finally, because one day I will perish in his hands, returning to Gath causes Saul to stop seeking him. So you could just, if you're thinking like uh, pragmatically, check. If I do this, then this is going to happen, and it does happen. So this is a success. Returning to Gath, if you remember, David's probably thinking, I once outwitted this king. Returning to this king, this area, I have a pretty good chance, I'm pretty cunning, of making things work once again. If you've forgotten what happened the first time, back in chapter 21, he goes into Gath. The servants of Achish quickly identify, this is David, the one who has killed the ten thousands while Saul has killed his thousands. This man is not good. We must do something. They go to Achish, put on the alarms, sound the alarms. And in verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So if you remember, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And that deception got him out of a very sticky situation. So, returning to Gath, he's thinking, I've done it once before, I can do it again. Check. You think about the people, his posse, his entourage, the group that's with him, if that's being presented to Achish, the king of, of Gath, he probably would look upon these 600 men of David in a very different light than he may have looked on David previously and saw them now as an asset. Hearing word that his enemy, Saul, has been searching David, he's now looking at David saying, he must be an enemy of my enemy, therefore he is my friend. So he, we're told by this passage, he welcomes him in. We don't, we don't know exactly what kind of dialogue happened to get Achish to that point, but maybe just visually looking and hearing, he puts that together and David and his men are welcomed. So his plan works on two fronts. Being in the land of the Philistines, it removes Saul's desire to, to run after him, to seek him. So that kind of goes to the wayside. And then King Achish actually welcomes him in. He finds favor. He has found favor with the king of Gath. And now David's home. So we see David's plan begin to unfold. Now David's new home. This is important for one who has so many to care for and who has been on the run. In verses 5 through 7, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servants dwell in the royal city with you? And so that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, a weird name for a town. But he has now been provided by the king of Gath security for his people. And there was distance between where Gath was and where Ziklag was. That was also, or that would prove to be very important in the ongoing deception of Achish the king. We're told exactly how long David spent in this area, 16 months, and he has this security provided. Perhaps, if you just think for a moment, this 
may have been David's men, men and their families' first enjoyment of sound sleep in months or even years. Now, important note, just in the history of Israel with Ziklag, it's amazing in the midst of these decisions being made by this cunning individual, how God, regardless of David's motives, which are not revealed in total to us, God is continuing to accomplish his purposes. How do we know that? Ziklag, it turns out, was a town allotted to the tribe of Judah during the distribution under Joshua. Going all the way back to Joshua 15.31, Ziklag was one of the towns, the areas that was part of the inheritance of the people of Israel, but had never been captured. And so David, whether he knew it or not, is securing this rightful possession of Israel. And we read in verse 6 of our passage, Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. David's plan is working. The deception is working. And from Ziklag, David can attack Israel's enemies. And so even in the midst of exile, he is in a way still helping Israel while alleging he is attacking Israel territories that are actually in Judah. So I I don't want us to miss the details of what's happening here that we see in David's scheme, verses 8 through 12. Really, when you think about someone being cunning, this is a masterstroke of genius, how he is deceiving the king of Gath. So basically what's happening, which we're given the details, he goes on raids with his men from Ziklag, not from Gath, so there's enough distance where the, the raids that are happening are not fully clear to Achish. He's just told when David comes back in what exactly has transpired. Where have you been today? What have you been doing? I'm looking at all of these rewards. It's pretty amazing. This is what you're bringing back. Where were you? David is listing off areas in Judah that would have been against his own people which leads to more deception, Achish thinking, man, this guy is an utter stench to his people. He is actually raiding his own people while he's living in the land of the Philistines. All the while, the actual locations that David is raiding is pretty, pretty amazing, twofold. One, They are the lands in which God had told his people to exterminate, to do away with as they enter into the land of Canaan. But two, they were also listed as enemies of the Philistines. So not only is he fulfilling God's original call, we see this in Numbers 33 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. This was God telling them, the Israelites, to destroy the inhabitants of the land. God told them through Moses to devote these places to complete destruction. But also these were enemies very specific to the Philistines as well. So as we're looking at how this unfolds, David is accomplishing what God had called his people to be about The people David attacks are 
our enemies on these two fronts. And to avoid detection, we're told that David kills everyone, both men and women, so that no word could possibly ever get back to King Achish to let him know that what he's saying actually isn't aligning with his actions. And so the result there is that the Philistine king trusts David more and more, but it's all on the basis of David's lies. Then we get to David's dilemma. Everything's been going really well according to his plans at this point. You get into chapter 28, and in those days, the Philistines begin to gather their forces to go to war against Israel. And now that David has gained the trust of the king of, a- uh, of Gath, Achish wants David and his men to be by his side as they go against their enemies, the Israelites. He even goes as far to say, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David, in this moment, finds himself trapped by his dishonesty. Achish trusted him, not because he was trustworthy, but because he was spinning a really intricate web of lies. This placed David in an even more difficult position than when he was fleeing from King Saul. He had been so successful in persuading the Philistines of his loyalty that their their king was now willing to trust David to join in attacking the Israelites, the very people that David was determined never to harm. And this is where we're left. This is a true cliffhanger because we do not pick this back up until chapter 29. There's a hard shift to King Saul and his actions uh, and the medium of Endor, which is also a very interesting passage. But this cliffhanger leaves us hanging, asking questions, lots of questions. Was what David did the right decision? Was was what David did faith-filled, or was it just successful? So many questions. There's probably many more. If you're taking notes, I would be interested to hear what kind of questions you would be jotting down as we don't know exactly how to evaluate the motives and the actions and, and, and really you know, how, how, how to proceed in, in interpreting what, what has transpired in this story. How David's activity here is to be evaluated. David has succeeded in finally shaking off Saul's pursuit, but the question, but at what cost? And this is really where I want us to spend some time as we look at verses 1 and 2. Thinking about chapter 26, how did David move from the confidence that we hear or heard in chapter 26 in God, primarily, to this type of despair in thinking at the beginning of chapter 27. I would also add the, the previous several chapters, all the different situations, encounters with people, and time of reflection of God's deliverance. How did we move, or how did David move from, from that place to this place? 
it truly is remarkable just thinking about rehearsing a little bit of those, uh, the abundance of evidence in his recent experience of the hand of God in the midst of Saul pursuing him, really making Saul powerless, even though, according to the eyes, Saul has all the power, really powerless against God's protective care. Back in chapter 23, Saul was about to stretch out his hand and seize David, if you remember this scene, when a sudden assault from the Philistines came and diverted Saul and his forces away from David. God clearly, in that very moment, delivered David. In chapter 24, when Saul came hunting for David, the Lord placed Saul at David's mercy. Out of all the, the caves in the land of Engedi, Saul ends up in the very cave that David and his men are in. And David, if you remember, just cuts off or removes a piece of, of Saul's robe. He placed Saul in David's hand, giving him the opportunity to have this type of exchange with King Saul outside the cave. And then as we've moved more recently, we mentioned this, the deep sleep that God had placed on Saul and his entire army that was with him so that David could encounter or enter into the camp and remove Saul's spear. All of this mounting evidence that Saul was powerless against God's promise to raise David up to the throne. So coming back to verses 1 and 2 of our chapter, it seems that David, in this moment of chapter 27, at the beginning, is wavering in his trust of what he has experienced from God's hand. His faith was wavering in this moment, that God would ultimately do what he said he would do. David thought to himself, literally translated in, in the ESV very helpfully, David said in his heart, and this really is, is revealing. This is what I want us to, to spend some time thinking about this morning. The state of our hearts are often shaped by what we say to our hearts. What David says to his own heart, this kind of self-talk, undermines his very confidence in God. It actually, what, what, what he is hearing from himself is running contrary to both the word of God and his experience of God. In that moment, he is, he is believing what his, his heart is telling him. I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to go to the land of the Philistines so that possibly he would give up chasing after me. Now, remember what the environment that's hap that, that this is happening in. Extended times filled with stress, clearly wearing on, on an individual. You could say this was a low-grade despair that may have gone unchecked in David's life. You know, with a low-grade fever, you're not immediately aware of the issue that may be happening inside your body. Likewise, spiritually, if you are encountering just an onslaught of waves of, of hard trials and tribulations, you may not even be aware of this low-grade despair that's been brewing. 
steadily growing inside of you. A good question to ask ourselves is, what am I speaking to my heart today? Now, for some of us, you're going, I I don't quite understand what you're saying, but you've got to understand that you, you speak more to yourself than anyone else does. You have an opportunity to either preach God's truth to yourself or allow yourself to just speak to you. And most of the time, when we just allow our, our self-talk, our, our, our thoughts to just invade us and not ever taking them captive or turning them to Scripture or rooting them um, in God's holy word, you find this kind of spiral of despair happening that we see in these first two verses that led David to these type of uh, conclusions. Our great adversary of our souls, we must remember again and again, is the devil who seeks to depress us and cause us to, to doubt God's goodness. And so when we think of spiritual battles, we must recognize that we, as long as we have breath in our lungs and we're fighting the flesh, we are, on a, we, we are in a battle. We are, we are in the midst of a battleground. We must identify unbelief as one of the primary battlegrounds of our hearts. When we listen to the lies instead of listening to God, we begin to start spir- spiraling out of control or, or spiraling into despair. So different ways that this plays out in our lives, different ways that we experience this kind of self-talk. One, one pastor calls this, uh, one of the ways, soul propaganda. Soul propaganda. So propaganda being information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular point of view. Maybe an extreme conclusion about something. If this is soul propaganda, what what does this mean when we're talking about self-talk? Well, God has given David, for example, glorious promises But since Saul is still after him, what he believes, this extreme conclusion, is that he will surely perish. So his mind moves away from what God has told him and promised him towards this kind of propaganda that because this king is continually after you, you will one day eventually perish. So think of Job as an example. We all have heard of the onslaught of difficulties and circumstances that Job encountered in his life. Hardships, trials of various kinds, extreme loss and suffering. And in, in Job 13, 24, there is a moment where he is, he is buying into this propaganda, this extreme conclusion, where in one verse he says, in verse 24, he says, Why do you hide your face, O God? And count me as your enemy. Now this is, this is a, an extreme conclusion based off of circumstance. At that moment, his self-talk is, is telling him that because of what has transpired, you know what, Job? Not only is God hiding his face from you, but you're actually no longer his beloved. You're one of his enemies, Do you see how that would just clearly lead you down a a spiral of of despair and 
and, and, and uh, struggle and unbelief. Another is unbiblical thought patterns. So seeing life through a negative lens only, you begin to isolate your experience or circumstance to the exclusion of anything else. We get hyper-focused on just maybe what bad is happening to us and lose sight of any marks or evidences of God's grace and have such tunnel vision locked in, honed in on just the unbiblical thought patterns that this is what life is all about. Even though David had seen remarkable provisions from God, he can't get over this singular idea that Saul will eventually succeed in killing him. I think another biblical example would be Elijah. After his encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal on uh, on Mount Carmel, if you remember, all that God did there, the fire coming down and consuming everything on the altar, and the the prophets of Baal being just um, not only the the defeat that happens, and, and they're just exposed for their false god worship, but then the, the end of their lives come. All of this, this happens, this victory, God, God showing and, and flexing his arm. And just moments later in 1 Kings chapter 19, the next episode is the, the, the wicked Jezreel makes known to Elijah her, her desire to put him to death. I'm sorry, Jezebel, not Jezreel. The wicked Jezebel threatens him, and what does Elijah do? He flees. So in chapter 19, verse 4, this is what we read. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Unbiblical thought patterns leading to this kind of spiraling, even in Elijah's life. Another example of this kind of self-talk happens with emotion-based reasoning. Emotion-based reasoning. What we feel has taken on truth status. What we feel, we, we trust our feelings. You probably interact with people, and if you're not careful, the whole conversation is led by, I feel this, or I have felt that, and that is interpreting your worldview or your understanding of a circumstance or a difficult experience. The psalmist in Psalm 31, 22 says this type of kind of uh, emotion-based reasoning and then needs to be directed otherwise. But he says, I, said, I have said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Because of what I've experienced, the conclusion is, I, I must be cut off from God's sight. All the while, while that is not true, it, you're allowing your emotions playing a role of authority, moving into the role of authority into your life. Lastly, and I would say this is a problem that David is experiencing as we look at how he responds in verses 1 and 2, promise amnesia. I want you to listen to what Abigail tells David before she becomes his wife, still Nabal's wife at the time in chapter 25. This is what she tells David. And see how this relates to forgetting God's promises. For the Lord will certainly make 
my Lord, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord, David, shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall be, uh, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you to be prince over Israel, rehearsing Abigail before David, all the promises of God. And I would submit to you, when you look at verses 1 and 2, there has been promise amnesia in David's very life. And so with the help of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into this self-talk. We must take ourselves in hand, and we must talk to ourselves. Now, some would hear this and say, isn't that what you just told us to avoid doing, all of this self-talk? Talking to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us is what we're driving at here. Doubt and despair come from letting ourselves talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Most unhappiness is caused by listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. So this is what he's trying to help Christians understand. The voice begins like this. You wake up in the morning and thoughts come to you and start talking to you, bringing up the, prob- the problems of yesterday. Instead of allowing this self-talk, we must start talking to ourselves. This is pr- precisely what the psalmist does in Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So the psalmist stands up and he talks to himself or preaches to himself. He addresses himself. He preaches to himself. He even questions himself. And he continues in helping us hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Go on to remind yourself of God, who he is and what he has done, what promises he has made to those who are his. So we need to stop listening to ourselves just talk and start preaching to ourselves what is true. Defy yourself, defy the devil, and say with the psalmist in verse 11 of Psalm 42, why are you count, uh, cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, he says again. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Remind yourself of what you know instead of listening to yourself and allowing yourself to be dragged down and become discouraged. That leads to unbelief and depression. I would just submit to you what we see in verses 1 and 2 and then the absence of, of God in the remaining part of this chapter is that David in this moment, instead of preaching to himself, allowed himself to just talk to him, which led him to 
the promise amnesia that was earlier mentioned, uh, emotion-based reasoning, extreme conclusions, that kind of soul propaganda, unbiblical thought patterns, all of that led him to those type of actions that were taken when he took his focus off of the promises of God, all that has been told to him and how God had delivered him and moved it onto what he has been experiencing, his circumstances, and what continues to press in upon him. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We, we see very clearly how cunning David is and the actions that are taken, the deception, the way that he works through this chapter. But I want us to root our lives upon Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In closing, what I want us to note here as we look at David, is to clearly see in this chapter in particular, but all throughout 1 Samuel, who the hero is. A lot of times we can place biblical characters on this pedestal and, and really just focus in on them being the heroes of all that transpires in their lives. And again and again, as we've worked through 1 Samuel, we want to take our, our gaze and our focus off of the individual and back on God who is the true hero. We see through these actions of David that he is flawed, clearly flawed. The anointed king is but a shadow pointing to the true anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we look at his flaws, it actually helps us really focus in on where we should focus. In chapter 26, David lets Saul know that the one who is rewarded, the one who is blessed, is the one who is faithful and righteous. And as we see David's life unfold, in all of his flaws and all of his sin and failures, the whole point is for us to not put our hope in a man. And even Israel, as they have watched the landscape of his life unfold and how God will eventually lead him to the throne as their king, do not miss this. God is the only one true king who will remain faithless, or faithful, will, will remain righteous, and the one who is truly trustworthy. So even when kings begin to fail, there is one who is to come who will never fail. And so there is this gospel moment. Ralph, uh, D Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, helps us here. He says, the Bible does not claim that God's servants are somehow dipped in like Clorox bleach so that they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to us. No, no, no. What makes the Bible just shine so bright as God's inspired word is that all the, the sin is laid bare, helping us see our need of a Savior to come, helping us see that we should not put our trust and hope in a man, but in the God-man to come. And so, our, 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 
our focus is in the right place as we move through even 1 Samuel 27 and remembering where our hope lies, where our trust lies. And David, as we will see, begins in chapter 29 to start turning back and seeing uh, where his trust truly lies. Hear from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. But in me, that the foremost, Jesus Christ, may display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we join in singing this line from a hymn that we love, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there, the one Jesus Christ, our holy Savior, who made an end to all of our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, pardon us, pardon all those to look, who look to the one and only Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we reflect upon this chapter, even in the midst of difficulties in evaluating all that transpired in David's thoughts, motives, and actions, where, where, where I pray you would help us by the power of the Spirit is to be a people that is firmly rooted on your promises and who you are that would guide and interpret how we respond to all of life's difficulties and circumstances. Not depending or leaning on our own understanding, but wholly trusting in you. May we see the fruit of that in our lives. Father, that it would not lead to unbelief or dis, uh, depression or despair when we have this kind of self-talk that is more um, focused on, on the things around us, the circumstances, but may our very thoughts be anchored on you and your promises and let that inform the way we interpret the things happening to us in this life. Father, strengthen your people. Encourage your people this day to once again trust fully and wholly upon you and you alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.